Hello, everybody. It's been a long afternoon. Thank you for uh, coming here to talk about poop, right? What can be more exciting than that? Um, so this is, uh, this, is, um, this is actually my mission field right here. Um, this is the University of Michigan. Uh, it's where I am at. Um, and uh, my, my two passions, um, I'm part of, this, part of the faculty um, there. My two passions really are overseas missions and secular campus ministries. And so whenever I see this picture, I think about this being my mission field. And um, I hope that uh, through this talk today, we can, um, I can show you some of the benefits of um, a couple of the passions that I have. Um, today, really the objectives, we're going to talk about the gut microbiome, which is the hottest topic in GI right now. Um, and uh, like Eric said, you probably have had patients at some point maybe talk to you about this, or maybe you've had some questions. I'll be going over the current research in the microbiome, the latest in fecal transplantation. And then we'll be talking about campus ministries and uh, the GI workup in the mission field if we can get to it. So the gut microbiome itself, a little bit about the underpin uh, underpinnings of it. It's the diverse ecosystem of basically bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa, and their genomes that make up the, both the gut, the GI tract, as well as the rest of the human body. The latest estimates um, in terms of the number of bacteria in your body is about 40 trillion cells at any one time. And so it actually number, outnumbers the number of actual cells you have. Okay, so the bacteria outnumber. So in essence, we are walking bacteria, if you really think about it, right? 500 to about 1,000 species of bacteria are estimated, and two healthy people may have vastly different microbiomes. And so research in this area is hot, but it has been difficult in some ways to do. Now, we have seen that your microbiome can differ in your birth delivery method. So if you have a natural birth versus C-section, you actually have different microbiome. Your geography will determine this. Your age can determine this, and your gender, as well as other factors, which we'll talk about today. And so this is a little kind of a pie chart. Uh, not pie chart. I mean, really looking at the different things that can impact your microbiome including diet and things, and I'll be getting into those today. So a little bit of history. So this gentleman um, who uh, looks like they had portraits back in the 1900s too, um, he is Eli Mechnikov, and he discovered lactobacillus, basically. And he was actually the first person that hypothesized that seeding the gut with healthy bacteria could actually be beneficial. So he used basically fermented kind of milk and then hypothesized that if you're, you know, if you're feeling sick that you can take that and seed the gut with healthy bacteria as opposed to bad bacteria because if you remember, you know, back then they would thought all bacteria is bad. And then he earned the Nobel Prize in 1908 for work in immunity. And this was really the first time where we were really talking about healthy bacteria, okay? So basically more recent history, because in between then and now, there wasn't a lot of work done. But in 2007, the NIH launched the Human Microbiome Project, and um, European Commission in China kind of followed suit. Um, and basically, they're trying to do, everyone's heard of the Human Genome Project, um, spearheaded by Francis Crick. Um, and uh, they're trying to do the same thing with the human microbiome. 
let's sequence everything and see what's there, right? So to date, about 1,300 reference strains have been isolated and sequenced out of 300 healthy adults. So um, basically, if you do a PubMed search on microbiome, I actually made this graph myself. I'm a little proud of that. Um, I took the actual numbers, too. So anyways, from 2003, there's nothing. One, it's like one study in 2003. And from in the last 13 years, you can see the exponential rise in publication on the microbiome, right? To the point where now you're, you're turning out more than 1,600 papers a year, right? A year. And uh, this, obviously, 2016 is not finished yet. So, the formation of the microbiome itself, you're um, in essence sterile at birth, although research is conflicting. They have found bacteria in places where they didn't think they would find bacteria, like placenta and things, um, and, and also in your amniotic, uh, you know, amniotic fluid that shouldn't be there really. But anyways, we will consider you sterile at birth, and then you're colonized by maternal bacteria during delivery, right? Um, and actually, they found that uh, uh, you, you get colonized by skin bacteria if, you, if you're delivered by C-section, and vaginal bacteria, obviously, if you're delivered uh, vaginally, right? Diet and breast milk actually give you different, uh, mic uh, different microbiome, okay? And I'll talk about that a little bit. And by age two to three years, actually, your microbiome looks like it would as an adult. Now, absence of this progressive colonization, so it's actually a beneficial thing to get colonized because if you don't, it actually places preterm infants at risk for various GI infections. The most devastating, of course, is necrotizing enterocolitis. Okay? So it actually puts you at risk for certain things if you don't get a good colonization of bacteria in your gut. Now, What's interesting here, and I just want to highlight a couple studies as we go, is that uh, this bifidobacteria, you can see that um, it can actually be associated with health. And in breastfed infants, this has actually been shown to be a dominant sort of bacteria if you do breastfeeding. Um, and then uh, there's, there hasn't been any clear, like, let's say, benefit of breastfeeding versus, um, versus formula in terms of the gut microbiome, but obviously studies are ongoing. Um, as compared to term infants, this is interesting, preterm infants actually have a different microbiome. Even though they were, you know, they're, they're delivered, they, you know, it's the same mom, obviously, and all those things, they actually have a different microbiome than those who actually are, um, are carried to term. And so that is also undergoing research. Preterm infants, so there's, there's some interesting research in preterm infants where they actually took... Um, subjects and supplemented their feeds with probiotics in the NICU, okay? And they actually saw that those preterm infants took less time to achieve full feeds and also reduced hospital length of stay, feeding intolerance, and duration of indirect hyperbilirubinemia, also increased weight gain and growth velocity. So it's a very interesting thing, right? Preterm infant, you come out, Obviously, you've got a different microbiome. You supplement their feedings with uh, probiotics, and it looks like it can improve some outcomes. Um, also, in necrotizing enterocolitis, they, this is an intriguing you know, area where they actually gave them probiotics as well, and this actually decreased their mortality from, from neck and actually decreased their all-cause mortality as well. 
So there may, there may be some real benefit there. Infantile colic, actually, I was, I was like, this is very interesting. I'm not a pediatrician by any means, okay? Uh, but so with infantile colic, I mean, colicky babies, right? I mean, you just got to, you just got to serve. I just, I, we just had a daughter, my wife and I, and uh, we were like, please let her not be a colicky baby, right? Because if she is, you just got to ride it out. You just got to survive, right? But actually, they did a systematic review, and um, they showed that the use of this probiotic, L-Ruteri, actually decreased crying time by 56 minutes a day. That's interesting, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a big deal for parents, right? 56 minutes, I mean, you know, I know, right? Another study showed that greater than 50% of infants showed a greater than 50% decrease in daily crying time. Right. So this is, I mean, these are some pretty sub substantial results. And prebiotic formula actually promoted the growth of these, and it, and it kind of, uh, it significantly lowered infantile colic. So even prebiotic seemed to make a difference. We'll talk about the microbiome now. So basically, uh, it's an increasing bacteria number as you get lower into the GI tract. Okay, stomach is least, colon is most, and the small intestines in the middle. You don't have to worry about all the different strains because these will likely change as the, as the microbiome project goes forward in terms of what is normal and what is not. And there is wide diversity between populations. This is just a slide, obviously I'm not gonna explain it. I don't understand it myself. But I just wanted to illustrate that it is a very complex process, the gut, in terms of bacteria, in terms of, you know, in terms of the genome and all of those things. Okay. So the gut microbiome, okay, so you may have, you, there, there was in the 1980s, there was this craze about fungal overgrowth, okay? And that is now hitting, uh, I would say, uh, like, like kind of, uh, um, what can I say, alternative medicine, okay? And so I have patients coming to me telling me that they were told by a naturopathic doctor that they have fungal overgrowth, and they need to be treated. And I, and I asked them why they were sent to me, and th th they said, well, they just told me I have candida overgrowth and you need to go see a gastroenterologist. Uh, unfortunately, uh, at this point, the, the testing for this is uh, difficult, um, unless you can actually see it on the scope. Um, you can pro probably culture it out of the stool, but everyone has fungus in their body, okay? That's the takeaway point. Everyone's got fungus in your body, it's kind of like the bacterial microbiome, except it only makes up 0.1% of the gut microbiome, okay? So generally, um, the immunosuppressed patients are the ones that are, will get this significant candidal overgrowth. The rest of the people, the research is still not there. I would, I would preach caution in terms of just treating people with antifungals. Because, like I said, the numbers just don't bear it out. 0.1% of the microbiome, right? So much more likely that you have some sort of bacterial imbalance as opposed to a fungal issue. But there's 267 distinct fungal taxa. Candida is the dominant strain. It's detectable in about 70% of adults, just fungi. PCR now um, kind of revolutionized everything. Um, there are limited studies. Um, there's no core microbiome that's been identified, and basically the only living fungus that's been studied in detail that may have some benefit and has had some clinical trials is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, okay? 
you know, you don't need to remember that, but basically it's actually been shown to improve traveler's diarrhea, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, IBS. So there may be something in the fungal microbiome, microbiome that can actually help, but, and this Saccharomyces uh, actually is in some probiotic formulations out there. But there might be some benefit here, but we don't know yet. Um, and basically, uh, there have been studies about how there's more fungal diversity in certain, um, in certain diseases, like I said, uh, maybe Crohn's, uh, GVHD have you know, some candida overgrowth. Um, and one study in particular that's interesting is that it showed a significant difference between vegetarians and a traditional Western diet, this fungal balance. And so I'll be talking more about diet, and that, that will be um, really my transition. Okay, so prebiotics, you've heard about them. Basically, they are food for uh, probiotics, okay? Food for good bacteria is what prebiotics is. Usually indigestible fiber compounds. They're resistant to digestion in the stomach. They then make it into the small intestine and the colon. The bacteria in the small intestine and the colon eat the prebiotics, and then they grow. So you're trying to feed good bacteria is basically the bottom line. That's what prebiotics are. Now, the prebiotic research is not there, but it does look like some prebiotics have been proposed to improve gut microbial health, okay? But really, there's no benefit in something like IBS because these are kind of, they contain these fermentable things that, uh, that can cause bloating and things like that. Now, probiotics, this is a busy slide, I'm sorry. Basically, as you know, probiotics are live bacteria that are non-pathogenic, and many of these microorganisms are part of the normal gut flora. So the strongest evidence as of now for probiotic use is really the treatment of acute diarrhea and pouchitis. That's where the best studies are. Eczema and genitourinary infections are the only non-GI diseases that have been really shown um, to have benefit from probiotics. According to Statista.com, but this is a huge market, right? Because look at that. In 2014, the sales exceeded $1.1 billion for probiotics. If you've gone to the you know, pharmacy and looked at the aisle, there's like 45 different brands. I mean, I even don't know, you know, I don't know how many, you know, what's what. Probiotic sales worldwide, it's a $25 billion market. But the, but the research is showing only benefit in only a very select number of diseases, right? And actually, the latest, there's a latest study that I didn't put up there, but it appears that probiotics do not benefit healthy people. If you have a healthy gut, you're having regular bowel movements, all those things, probiotics are, not, are of no benefit to you. It's a waste of money. You're feeding the industry, right? It's when you're sick that maybe it will be a benefit. They're not regulated at all at all, okay? Not regulated at all. I can't stress this enough. I don't know what goes in there, okay? I don't know what goes in there. Nobody knows what goes in there. There's only a few that have really been studied. Okay, the other thing is that probiotic effects are strain-specific. So a beneficial effect um, attributed to one strain of, of, of that particular, uh, like there's a couple different strains of lactobacillus, there's a beneficial effect with one strain, but with another strain, there's no beneficial effect. Now, <clears throat> some members of the intestinal microbiota also influence the onset of carcinogenesis. 
Um, and then it's also known that some ingestion of probiotic strains have, have not been associated with long-term colonization survival. So the benefit of probiotics is not long-term, it's only temporary. And studies evaluating products on supermarket shelves found that contents do not always correspond with what the label claims, including number and viability of probiotic or microorganisms. So used with caution, the most commonly used are lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. It's worth noting that not all species of probiotics are even part of the normal human gut flora. So that's interesting as well. So you could be buying a probiotic that has bacteria in it that actually shouldn't actually be in your gut, right? So you need to choose wisely, okay? All right. Now to the subject that everyone came for, right? Fecal microbiota transplantation or stool transplant. Now, this is one of the hottest topics, even though it's been around since the 4th century. It is fascinating. It's been fascinating. The C. diff epidemic, Clostridium difficile, at its height, had approximately 7,000 infections and 300 deaths per day in the United States. Um, really, fecal microbiota transplantation has really uh, gained steam in the last 10 to 15 years, I would say. During fellowship, uh, uh, I, um, I was part of a couple of them, and we had really only started them in my second year of fellowship. That was only about four or five years ago. Um, and presently only permitted for CDI or C. diff infection refractory to standard therapy, meaning vancomycin and flagell. Right? You have to actually have failed a couple courses in order to um, get transplantation. But the crazy part is this, right? The cure rates are 90%. 90%. And that has been reproducible across all studies. In fact, um, at my institution now, that is the number that we are hitting, 90%. Okay? So 90% of all C. diff patients who have had recurrence and failure on medications, if they get a fecal transplant, they are cured. Okay? Has been also been used in critically ill patients, and the cure rate is as high as 93%, which is crazy, right? The way you do it, which I didn't put up there for you know, various reasons, right? But basically, you take donor stool probably within 12 hours, okay, of defecation. The donor should generally be somebody who's close to you, although I will talk about that later as well. And basically what you do is you collect the stool, you mix it with some sort of dilutant um, because you use a, colon a scope to get to the cecum and come out, and the scope has a very small channel, so if you're trying to push stool out through the channel, it's gonna get stuck, it's not gonna get out, right? So basically, you need to make the stool more liquid. You mix it with milk or something like that in a blender, yes. Don't use that one at home, okay? And, and you blend it, uh, and then, and then you, you get to the cecum, and then you just push it out. Push it out through the port on the way out. And, and that cures people. I mean, it's unbelievable, really, right? Um, a recent study, though, um, it rare if any side effects, side effects or adverse events for now, other than procedural complications. But in IBD patients, after stool transplantation, there was a 25% disease flare rate, which we do not understand at this point, okay? And, it, and a lower clearance rate um, in IBD patients. Initially, patient-selected donors encouraged, but now patient's choice, and yes, frozen stool banks do exist. You can be a donor too, okay? <laughs> All right, 
Open biome is one of them, and they actually exist. You can actually donate stool and then um, potentially actually save a life, in, in really, if you think about it. But um, who would ever thought, right? But you have to be rigorously screened. Body mass index, uh, antibiotic history, you know, all, all of the things that you would normally consider in um, things. Because we don't know. We don't know if you know, you having some kind of disease will actually, could actually transfer to somebody because in the, in the further, you know, slides that I'll show you, it could be a very real sort of worry, right? Um, delivery via colonoscopy appears to have, the in, uh, have increased rate of success, believe it or not, before they would use an upper endoscope and actually put it into your stomach, which, oh, or duodenum or jejunum, it looks like in the colon is the best. If you do it both ways at the same time, one cohort actually achieved 100% success rate. And yes, there's a future where it's a pill that you ingest. And there are studies ongoing right now. Two studies with two rounds of treatment showed a 90% success rate, which gets rid of the procedural complications. But really, you, you have to, the, you know, the mind, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's, 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 that's the difficult part, right? But despite this, C. diff incidence and mortality continues to rise. And so we really need to think about, and I think it's really, it's in prime time now. Our institution, there's large academic institutions doing this. Um, it's in prime time, there's a lot of, uh, they, people smell the money, right? So the pharmaceutical companies are smelling the money, and they are now um, trying to develop uh, less invasive ways of really um, getting rid of C. diff, which actually would be a very good thing to do. Um, it's appears safe in all of these. But there is some interesting things about fecal transplantation not related to C. diff. There may be some efficacy in IBD, but like I told you, there's a re most recent study, maybe not. There's case reports of actually non-C. diff infections, including recurrent UTI from E. coli resolving after transplantation, and uh, uh, recurrent Klebsiella pneumonia actually resolving. It was recurrent Klebsiella pneumonia that was causing recurrent osteomyelitis actually resolving after stool transplantation, which is very interesting, right? And it tells you that the gut, especially a diseased gut with bacterial translocation across the intestinal barrier can certainly act as a seeding mechanism for different, different diseases out there. And so it kind of really is going to be a, a very interesting sort of research frontier as to what you could actually do with fecal transplantation. Okay, so the gut microbiome itself has, it appears, big impact on diseases not related to the gut. And I'm gonna go through a few of them pretty quickly today, but it's pretty crazy. Carcinogenesis, so cancer obviously, obesity there might be, a, there might be a link, atherosclerosis, there might be a link, non-alcoholic fatty liver, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, these, are, these could all potentially be impacted. And actually, most recently, stroke. These could, all be most, these could all be impacted by your gut microbiome. So I was very happy to kind of, as I was preparing for this talk, really think about Adventism, right? health message, right? And, and you're like, well, if, if the bacteria control everything, where does the health message come in here, 
right? You, you kind of think, but we believe in the health message, amen? And so when I, we looked at the, the impact of diet on the microbiome has been looked at and extensively. And actually, a landmark study showed that the composition of microbiota differed from children living in Africa versus in Europe based on the two different diets that they had, plant-based diet versus Western diet. Higher amounts, you don't need a, you don't, you don't need higher amounts of Prevotella, lower amounts of bacteroids in Burkina Faso, and the opposite for the Western diet. And a number of studies have showed that increased microbial richness with diets higher in fruits, vegetables, and fiber. And the elderly actually showed less frailty. Okay? So your diet, you are actually what you eat, even in terms of the gut microbiome, that you actually have differences in your gut microbiome based on what you eat. And the benefits of a diet high in fruits and vegetables, a plant-based fiber diet, cannot be understated. In those same studies, increased bacterial diversity led to better health. Oh, by the way, I should add a disclaimer. Um, I have some references at the bottom of some of the slides, but some of the slides have so many references, I have them in my notes. I, sh I should know that. So got references, but they're not actually on the slide, by the way. Okay, so lower bacterial richness in your gut, so a non-plant-based diet, right, um, associated with obesity, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and inflammatory disorders. And actually, at the genomic level, diet can alter functional metabolism. So this is very interesting. They did a study in Japan taking seaweed that was, um, that was genes that were encoding enzymes that metabolize algae, okay? So, you know, Asians, we, we, we like our seaweed, right? So they took these seaweed genes and then they actually tested for them after eating and the genes on the, on, on the, in the seaweed actually transferred into the genes in the gut microbiome. Do you get what I'm saying? So on the genomic level, those genes actually got encoded into your actual microbiome genes based on what you eat, which is crazy, right? That's crazy if you think about it, that your gut microbiota, your actual genetics of your gut microbiota were changed by what was eaten. And then many molecules in foods are substrates for intestinal microbiota. So like I talked about, with prebiotics and things, indigestible carbohydrates and diets, um, they, they turn into short-chain fatty acids. This can regulate a lot of different things. And like I said before, what's interesting about this, and I'm glad that Nita, um, and I don't remember your first name, Ash, they, they, they went um, before me with exercise, enhanced gut microbiotal di diversity was seen. And, the, and, and everyone understands, right, the more diverse your gut microbiome is, the better it is because the more resistant it is to changes, which means that if something unhealthy comes along, you're actually more resistant to change, right? And exercise actually impacts your gut microbiome, increased diversity in the bacteria, positively correlated with increased exercise dietary protein, right, compared to non-athletic control groups stress in the microbiome. So see, it's all coming together, right? We're talking about diet, exercise, and now we're talking about stress. In animal models, prenatal and postnatal stress actually alter the composition of your microbiota. And in adult mice, psychosocial stress reduced the proportion of bacterioides, but increased the proportion of clostridia. It's interesting, right? 
they actually stressed mice and they changed their microbiota just based on the stress alone. Also, preclinical studies in IBS showed um, reported reductions in a couple of bacteria, but studies need to further elucidate why this is the case. But possibilities include stress-induced acceleration or other effects of stress on the intestinal microbiota. And, comes, um, and brings me to this quote from Child Guidance that says, the digestive organs, like a mill which is continually kept running, become enfeebled. Vital force is called from the brain to aid the stomach in its overwork, and thus the mental powers are weakened. The unnatural stimulation and where the vital forces make them nervous, impatient, and restraint self willed and irritable. If you read this quote, you're like, wait a second. What I eat, could that actually impact my brain working harder to digest? I mean, that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But actually, it does, right? Gut-brain access. So it turns out that the fecal microbiota, the gut microbiome, can actually alter your gut-brain access on a nerve level, an autonomic nervous system level. Multiple mechanisms are shown where you can impact the pituitary access in terms of the environment of the intestinal microbiota. You can alter motility patterns, how leaky your gut is, um, secretion of your gut, and all of these things um, due to intraluminal release of neurotransmitters for intraendocrine and other cells in the gut. You can actually alter all of those things by altering the microbiota. And the, re and the research has shown that all of these different metabolites can induce an immune response um, in the local cells within the gut. These factors then can signal via the afferent vagal pathways and target to well beyond the GI tract. Right. So your altered gut microbiome can actually impact your nervous system and how you're feeling and how you're thinking. And if you look at it, this is a very busy slide. I won't, I won't, I won't explain it in much detail, but suffice to say that all these are all the pathways. Basically, your gut microbiome gets changed or whatever. It gets taken up. It induces all of these nerves and things to fire, and this actually feed, feeds back to the brain and can actually change what you are feeling and how you're feeling it, and actually can change the pathways. So one study showed that depletion of the gut microbiota during adulthood, this is a mouse study, actually results in deficits of spatial memory, and it increases your sensitivity and a greater display of depressive-like symptoms. Right. So actually, they took the mice, they took their gut flora away, they altered it, and the mice showed behavioral changes, which is crazy. Increased depression and also deficits in spatial memory. They also found that there was altered serotonin concentrations based on the gut microbiota alone and changes in brain-derived neuro, uh, neurotrophic factor, a hallmark of altered gut-brain signaling. In other studies, intraduodenal injection of bacteria increased um, ga um, gastric vagal nerve signaling right, and sympathetic nerve activity and long-term treatment with probiotics actually reduce anxiety and depression-related behavior. In mice, let me be very clear, in mice. And in another mouse model, antibiotic-induced changes, this is interesting, in behavior, were independent of vagotomy or sympathectomy. It's interesting, right? Everyone catch that? 
They actually cut the vagal nerves in the mice but the and then gave them antibiotics, and they had behavioral changes independent of whether the vagus nerve was actually even working or not. So there are pathways that we don't even know about that are actually impacting behavior from the gut microbiota. Um, finally, uh, autism. So they have mimicked autism in mice, okay? And they have uh, altered the microbiota of these mice, and they've seen that giving them probiotics actually reverses behavioral abnormalities of these autistic mice. Okay, so very interesting stuff. Now we talk about obesity. We know this is an epidemic. 1.9 billion people around the world. What they found is that um, there's a couple different things that they found, but some of the preservatives in food can actually alter your microbiota. So again, what you're eating. And the neurobehavioral changes attributed to obesity were actually transferred with gut microbiome transplantation, such as depression and dementia in mice. The other thing is germ-free mice have been shown to remain lean despite a high-fat, sugar-rich diet. So they actually depleted, uh, they took mice, depleted their, they made them germ-free, they gave them a, like a high-sugar, a high-fat diet, and they didn't gain weight. So you can see the microbiota actually impacts your weight gain, potentially. And there was a landmark study that showed that there's a 60% increase in fat and insulin resi resistance in mice within two weeks of transplanting gut microbiota to germ-free mice, despite reduced food intake. Right. So mice getting transplantation, they actually, it's an increase in fat and insulin resistance. So there's, and then they did some twin studies and it looks like there might be some energy harvesting differences. So if you have a different microbiota, you may be extracting more or less calories from your diet based on what bacteria you have in your gut, which there is implications in terms of obesity for that. And also, um, the famous, you know, well, more famous study, they reported a case report of somebody who underwent a fecal transplantation for C. diff, and then, uh, or I don't know if it was for C. diff or something else, but it was a fecal transplantation and got a 41-pound unintentional weight gain from an obese donor, which is fascinating, which would stink, right? I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but, but see, so there are, there, there's stuff we don't understand right now. That's basically the bottom line. But that is fascinating stuff. A randomized trial, they did um, basically supplementation with probiotics, and they showed 9% greater weight loss in one group versus the other. Okay, but we got to take this all with caution, right? Because the latest study, they did a pooled analysis actually out of my institution. Um, recently, it was actually in August of 2016, um, there is no clear common characteristic of the micropopulations or microbiomes in the digestive systems of obese people that make them different from the microbiomes of those with a healthy weight, okay? So right now, even with these case report-ish sort of things, mouse models and things, at this point, we do not have any smoking gun, silver bullet sort of thing where microbiomes are any different between, any statistically significant difference between obese people and non-obese people. Um, but obviously the research is ongoing and there are some compelling sort of um, things that we just talked about. Atherosclerosis, 
So, um, so they actually elucidated this novel pathway that, in, that linked dietary lipid intake to intestinal microbiota and then leading to atherosclerosis. And pathways have also been proposed for stroke. Okay. So there, is, there could be some impact on atherosclerosis as well. So um, basically, the bottom line for the gut, um, the gut microbiota, um, as I go forward in my presentation, is that obviously the research is ongoing. There has been an explosion in the literature. Um, and we'll summarize in a little bit, but there's a lot of exciting things. Um, I've always truly believed in my heart of hearts that GI is the center of the universe. <laughs> and it's proven it right now, right? Anyways, I'm just kidding. but. Um, but really, uh, I think there's a lot of impact uh, here in terms of diet, in terms of how you process that diet, um, what a healthy gut actually means. And I think, um, I think the, the more and more research that comes out, the more and more um, our health message gets validated, even on a bacteria genome level, right? That actually your diet and all of these things can impact and positively impact or negatively impact even the gut microbiome and the bacteria that you have in the gut. And that can directly lead to a whole lot of different alterations and pathology in different diseases in your entire body. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, how this is kind of how my time in an academic medical center and things have really kind of transferred to uh, one of my uh, real passions, which is the necessity of secular campus ministries. As you know, um, 80 to 90 percent, or you may not know this, but probably about 80 to 90 percent of um, Adventist young people in high school end up going to a secular university for college. Right? And that's a conservative estimate. I would say 80 percent or more, which is a staggering number if you think about it. And nobody is ministering to them. We are putting a lot of our resources into Adventist education, which um, you know I was a product of until eighth grade. Right? I love my time. I will try to send my children to Adventist education as well. But there is eighty, and we wonder why the young people are leaving. Right? Actually, eighty percent of them are uh, going to non-Adventist institutions, and really, a ministry needs to exist to reach these students. And college is really when you make decisions about your beliefs for life. And it's something that I've been involved in um, uh, for since college, uh, going to a secular university at Michigan and also medical school. Um, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. I feel that there is a potential role of physicians and healthcare providers in campus ministries. Right? It, just like you think about the microbiome, and just like you think about how the bacteria in your gut can actually lead to far-reaching consequences in the rest of your body, right? I feel that that is the same way in terms, of, um, in terms of how college students in secular campuses can have the impact on the entire body of Christ. And, and we don't really think about that often, right? And just like with the microbiota, you know, with uh, greater diversity, um, you actually are healthier, right? And just like if you have alterations and imbalances in that microbiota, it can actually lead to disease, right? We have, um, we have, we have, di um, we have diversity in all of these things, and I don't think we are taking advantage of it. And so for me as a physician, and having been a resident and all these things, I feel that we are 
um, physicians and other healthcare providers were uniquely suited to mentor, um, to serve as mentors due to interactions with a wide variety of secular individuals on a daily basis. I think that you may have a better idea of balance, no, not balance, but a better idea of really how to interact with that than maybe somebody who's not in the same environment, who's grown up in the bubble, okay, so to speak. And I think that physicians also have the educational background that are generally seen as legitimate. I say generally, right? <laughs> because you never know, but generally seen as legitimate by students where they're trying to get ahead, they're trying to you know, graduate all these things and you can give them advice and physicians have the means to make a difference. But really it takes sacrifice and I think you know, um, you know, we, there's not enough of us I think in, the, in, in, in academic medicine um, and I feel, but, but you don't need to be in academic medicine to actually impact uh, a secular campus because all of us actually live near secular campuses, I believe. And so when I was a resident, actually, um, uh, like uh, I went to Roch University of Rochester, um, when I was a resident, um, I, we, we actually tried to start a campus ministry. And all we did to start one was, all I did was I just cooked. And, and cooked is a relative term. <laughs> I tried to make... <laughs> lunch for the college students every Sabbath at my apartment, all throughout residency, actually, right? That's a small sacrifice, though, right? You think, oh, man, how do you have the time? But really, if you put the priority, you can do it, okay? And we did that in a Sabbath afternoon Bible study. That's what we did. Eat at my place, Sabbath afternoon Bible study, right? We started with less than 10. We topped out at 35, right, over the course of the six years I was there, right? It can be done. It can be done. And I was uniquely in that situation because as a resident, compared to all the students, I was at least making a salary, right? And I could at least sacrifice the little bit that I had to be able to just give people a meal and then have a simple Bible study afterwards, right? And there, we actually, um, there, there are, there's actually one of our um, baptisms uh, who is non-Adventist to start with is actually in medical school in New York right now, right? And all of these, there, actually there was another student, a good friend of mine, who uh, was thinking about leaving the church, and he, he's graduating from seminary this year, from Andrews, right? And so these are the differences that you can make um, just based on where you are. And I, on my first slide, I pointed at Michigan, I said, that is my mission field. And a lot of, a lot of times we don't think that way, right? We've talked a lot about this weekend, and it's great, and going forward that, you know, we talked a lot about how to reach your patients, and that's very important, right? That's the first, how to reach your family, right? But to me, it's how to, how to be a mentor, the physician as a mentor, and that's my thing, in terms of college campus ministries, right? Secular campus ministry, how to, how, how to be that. Because really, you know, you can provide Bible study guidance, you can provide a place to meet, and we have the opportunity to mentor those that are considering a career in health. And there's explosive potential of campus ministries, as in Acts 19, where Paul went into the synagogue. And then in, in verse 9, he actually departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, which is, for all we can tell, a non-Christian uh, school. And so Paul went to this public school, and he reasoned with them for two years. And what happened? So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
Did you get that? Right. You may have seen this verse before, but you think, oh, Paul just traveled around Asia, and that's how he spread Christianity, right? But actually, it was his two years of time in the school of Tyrannus, and that's how all of Asia heard the word of Jesus. How? You impact college students, you teach them during the two years that Paul was there, and they go to the world. They go to the world. And so you, you have college students that are trying to make a decision on what they're going to believe for the rest of their lives, and 80 to 90% of our young people are getting no guidance at all about what to believe in their lives, right? Because they're going to non-Adventist institutions. So we need to be able to reach those, right? Because you can impact the world. They go all over the place, all over the world. The last thing I want to talk about is another... Um, I've got, I think I've got five minutes. The, uh, the last thing I want to talk about, see, I drew you in with fecal transplantation, and now I'm hitting you with ministry, right? Okay, so the last thing uh, that I want to talk about is another thing near and dear to my heart, and that is overseas missions. Overseas medical missions, you've, you've heard about them throughout, but I want to give you a quick GI primer on this so you know at least what to take with you, okay? Um, the majority of, your, majority of your diagnoses overseas doing a quick GI overview is going to be infectious. We know that, okay? Because you're probably going to be in a developing country, right? So it's probably going to be infectious. Know the area and the common diseases, particularly infections that are endemic to that area, and have the necessary antimicrobials to deal with the specific disease. A lot of times we just kind of try to get what we can get before we go on a mission trip, right? You get look for donations or whatever. Some people give Cipro, you know, whatever it is, right? But it's actually better to really think about, like, broad-spectrum things that can actually treat a variety of diseases and have a lot of those so you actually have something to be able to treat people with, right? So this is a kind of a list. If bacterial ciprofloxacin gives... Um, given prevalence of traveler's diarrhea, obviously, if it's bacterial, you think it's bacterial or something, then ciprofloxacin. And actually, it's beneficial for the people with you on the trip as well, right? Because somebody's going to get diarrhea. I guarantee it. You might get diarrhea, okay? And you're going to need Cipro at that point. Uh, the other thing I want to um, uh, tell you about is GIPCR now exists. So this is interesting. So, so for the longest time, for decades, we just did stool culture, which is the worst test ever. Like, I've had, like, one positive stool culture out of, like, the 500. That, and literally, it's those kind of numbers. We now have a GIPCR panel where you can actually send it off, and they check this entire thing by PCR, and it comes back within, like, two days or something, way faster than a stool culture. And um, there, there are efforts underway to actually make this available uh, for overseas countries, which will actually be very helpful. It checks for, like, everything everything you can think of, anything that can be PCR, um, even like acute bacterial diarrhea, you can actually get a diagnosis, right? So I've actually had a couple of these come back positive. And so this, this may be a beneficial tool, possibly down the road, um, for, for mission trips. Parasitic infections are very common. Mibendazole or albendazole in sufficient quantities is something that I would recommend, um, having been on... Um, having been on uh, multiple uh, mission trips as medical director. Tinidazole for antiprotozoan. Praziquantil for tapeworm. And then I would note that if somebody comes in and they've been having chronic diarrhea, post-infectious irritable bowel is always a possibility, right? And so with that, 
it would, there would be bloating, change in bowel habits, abdominal pain, lasting for about zero to six months after GI infection, which you presume that they would already have. And for post-infectious IBS, your treatment would be a low FODMAP diet, which for those of you who don't know what that is, you can talk to me afterwards. There's a specific diet that's been shown to improve uh, IBS-type symptoms. And the other thing would be possibly rifaximin um, for post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. <clears throat> and as a final thing, for reflux heartburn, I would probably have some PPIs, like Prilosec over-the-counter omeprazole on hand, uh, knowing that you're only going to give short courses to these patients. H2 blockers are actually also likely cheaper. And in fact, uh, we were in a pinch. We had somebody who was having an allergic reaction on one of the mission trips, and we actually used some famotidine because there's actually H1 receptor cross reactivity, and so you can actually use it potentially in allergies as well, um, or an allergic reaction. It's not gonna work as well as Benadryl, obviously. Uh, but uh, uh, but, but that, that's another benefit. H2 blocker is likely cheaper, so keep that in hand, because you're actually gonna get people that come in with heartburn um, in the developing world as well. Um, but obviously, lifestyle interventions are the best. Right? Lifestyle interventions are the best. Uh, for heartburn, and I'm actually happy about the studies that have come out about PPIs with chronic, like uh, potential kidney issues and things down the road. I'm actually happy about that because it's going to force the U.S. and Americans to actually change their diet and do lifestyle modifications for reflux as opposed to just seek a pill. Okay, so you can ask me about PPI stuff later if you want. So conclusions. I'm on time. The gut microbiome appears to have far-reaching impact in the body, and I hope that I've shown you that today. Diet appears to have a significant impact in determining the gut microbiome as well as exercise and stress. More research is needed, obviously. I mean, despite the explosion in research, but exciting possibilities really lay ahead in terms of interventions that potentially could be taken um, to help people actually be resistant to disease. Uh, um, there, there's, I should add this one study that was done. I just heard about it. Um, one, of our, uh, one of our labs um, at U of M, uh, they actually um, have found, or they tested in a mouse model. They were like giving mice E. coli, and then they gave them like a specific probiotic, and the people that got a specific probiotic, uh, the, the mice actually didn't get E. coli. So there's some like potential you know, if you think about it, as medical missionaries, if you're going to go overseas and you could take something that could prevent you from getting E. coli, that's pretty awesome, right? I mean, that's, you know, that could potentially really change a lot of things, especially in developing countries. Fecal transplantation for C. diff appears reliable, safe, and effective at this point. Um, and fecal transplantation for other things, including um, obesity, are ongoing. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but there's a, there's a trial out of Harvard, at least in phase two right now, where they're giving um, pills uh, that are, you know, I mean, from the stool bank and looking to see if you can actually make people less obese by giving them the pills over an extended period of time. Because if you're logically following me today, you would think, oh, if there is some difference, although the latest study didn't show it, you could do a fecal transplant to somebody who's, who's, who's obese and potentially get them weight loss. And it'd be better than gastric bypass, right? But that's probably, it ain't that simple, I'm sure, right? Okay, 
Campus Ministries provides the potential for the healthcare provider to impact the world. Um, it's really something that has uh, really impacted my life, and I think there is potential for that. If you want to discuss that further, um, I'm also available for questions. And um, that is it. I'm not going to talk about gut microbiome and GI diseases because I think you all will be bored out of your minds, right? <laughs> Are there any questions? Yes. Oh, inserting like um, prebiotics or actually inserting food into yeah, fiber, foods. fiber foods into the gut. Yeah, um, greens. Uh, greens. One would, the, the, I don't think there have been any studies because you would presume that eating that would be enough to transplant it. But, but there's people that cannot stand there so sick. They oh, okay, I see what you're saying. They can't ingest at all. Right, so like somebody like a TPN dependent patient or food. So I don't think that they have done any studies on that yet. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, what are my thoughts on that? I mean, you know, there may be, you know, we saw there may be some benefit with prebiotics and maybe altering the gut uh, flora through a prebiotic route only. And so I do think that, you know, fiber kind of falls in the prebiotic thing. So there potentially is something there, I think. The, the, the other issue is that if you're, if you're going to be impacting actual um, absorption, right, the majority of the absorption actually takes place in the small intestine, right? So C. diff is very receptive to a fecal transplantation because it's primarily involved in the colon, right? So that's why it works, right? You just do the colonoscopy and leave it in the colon and then you're done. Um, but I think that for something like absorption, things like that, with the pre prebiotics and things, that, that remains to be seen, I think, as to whether you can, like, I would think that you impacting small intestinal stuff might be more beneficial, uh, but that would be my thoughts on it. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, sir. What is there in terms of lactose intolerance and its increase? Lactose intolerance and its increase in terms of just, like, just overall in terms of prevalence? Yes. So I would say... Right, particularly in children. So yes, yeah, so I think that there's probably some uh, microbiome changes probably that, are, that may be impacting that. Um, there's probably, I'll bet, some food processing things that are impacting that as well. And I think that that is an area that hasn't really been studied yet. Um, and so we'll see. Um, the other thing that I want to note, um, I, in case you all didn't know, um, and this research is probably about 10 years old, maybe 10 years, 5, 10 years old, but um, uh, about t at least 10 years ago, out of the 22 million tons of antibiotics that were used in the United States, so 22 million tons per year of antibiotics used in the United States, do you know how much was used in humans? Two. Two million tons. You know, you know what the other 20 million tons were? Yeah. Talking to Adventists, right? So it's an obvious answer. But, but so, the, so the crazy, so you think about like bacterial resistance, all these things, um, all of these different things, altering the gut microbiome and things like that, it follows that there may be some um, potential there. Yes? Yes. So, so that's an actually a great question. I actually didn't put that in a slide, but they have done studies on gastric bypass and microbiome. And it appears that there is a change in gastric bypass in the microbiome 
for the surgery. And actually, there is probably some weight loss potential in the microbiome uh, that actually contributes to weight loss in gastric bypass. So the answer would be yes. Um, there appears to be a difference in, in gastric bypass surgery in the microbiome. Uh, yes. Yes, sir. Small, small amounts of, I'm sorry? Oh, weed killer? Oh. I do not believe I saw that. But, but, the, but the, so I should have said, this is like, uh, there's like 4,000 studies out there. <laughs> and so I do apologize. I have the time to go through all them. But there might be something there, but I, I, I did not come across it um, in, in my research. Yes. Uh, there, there was a gentleman. You're good. Uh, yes, sir. Adventist Health Study. Yes. The microbiome uh, part of this that just started. Yes. Um, to, what, what do I expect what, to see? What are they looking at? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not part of that, so I, I don't know. But I can presume that they're going to be looking at differences between uh, meat eaters versus not. I was excited when I was starting to look at this because I was like, you know, I thought in my head, oh, this would be a great study for the Adventist, you know, Adventist health study. But like you said, the research already is there. I mean, it's plant-based. Plant-based is, is better. You know, go ahead. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So... So what I was saying is that at this time, the, the scientific research, the, the literature doesn't support, I don't think, taking probiotics in a healthy individual, right? So, so I'm, I'm saying that probiotic supplementation itself, while there probably isn't harm, I'm not saying it's harmful, but it's not showing an actual benefit in health. Do you get what I'm saying? So certainly not harmful. So I would, I would say that it actually, in order to get a healthy microbiome, the best way to do it is diet, right? But if you want to supplement with the, with the probiotic, just choose the right one. The, the thing that I was talking about in uh, like overseas and things is that uh, there is potential at this point, and there's been a few studies on this, but potentially um, if you're going into somewhere and you're going to get acute diarrhea, probiotics may actually help you help to... Uh, stave it off, but but that's tenuous at this point. Yes. And the other part of the question is about for people who are taking antibiotics. I've heard a lot of push to good. take probiotics. It's a good question as well. I should I should have yeah. Right. So, so the t so really the two the two studied probiotics at this point is VSL number three, okay, which has lactobacillus strains. That's number one. Number two is Align. Okay. Now, more probiotic, strain, probiotic brands are going to be studied as time goes on, but those are the ones that I tell patients that have actually been studied. Um, in antibiotic-induced diarrhea, I should have said this as well, it does appear that taking probiotics may be beneficial, uh, probably lactobacillus-type probiotics. So I'd probably say that if you should probably try to get one that has lactobacillus in it. That may potentially help you in terms of an antibiotic. Um, but like I said, the research also is evolving in that area as well. So I wouldn't take it as gospel per se, but that would be my recommendation. Yeah, Nita. This is something that I've seen a long time ago. 
Overgrowth, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I have not heard of any follow-up studies to that, um, and and I've not and I've not heard of any um, any microbiome studies related to either frequency of eating or uh, um, frequency of eating or when you're eating. I would say that that's an intriguing concept, and certainly I think somebody is going to study it at some point because of the literature in endocrine uh, endocrinology and and obviously where where it does seem to make a difference as to uh, you know. You know how much you eat, when you eat, all of those things. But no, I have not seen a follow-up study to that. Yes, sir. Any, any studies uh, correlating microbiome and gluten sensitivity? And all right, so that's a good question. So gluten gluten sensitivity is a whole another topic. And actually, each slide that I showed today for microbiomes is a lecture in and of itself. Okay, just so you know. But um, the latest study in gastroenterology, which was a month ago on celiac disease. So I'll say, I'm going to take celiac disease and not gluten sensitivity. Gluten sensitivity, is a, that's a topsy-turvy, not well-defined concept at this point. I will take celiac disease, latest study a month ago in gastroenterology, showed that with celiac disease, um, they tested the microbiome, and actually they actually had alterations between non-celiac disease patients and celiac disease patients. Celiac disease patients had increased pseudomonas, and the increased pseudomonas actually led to increased sensitivity of gluten passing the intestinal barrier, which is very interesting. Whereas um, the non-celiac disease patients did not have as high, um, high levels of that, and so they were more resistant to gluten being taken across the intestinal barrier. So it looks like there may be some microbiome changes that actually attenuate and potentiate um, celiac disease in terms of sensitivity. Small bowel, correct. So small bowel, pseudomonas, they took and cultured and they looked, and, then, and there may be something there in terms of actual intestinal barrier and intestinal sensitivity to gluten based on your microbiome. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Yay. Right. Sure. Yeah, so I think I think I think one of the important things is to is is we're not students, right? So in order to have a campus ministry, you do need some dedicated students. You need a core, um, and trying to find that core can be challenging in some cities. But being able to find that core is probably the most important step, because I really I really feel like our our role, um, you know, if you're motivated enough, yes, you can go and start a campus ministry somewhere. Um, uh, but really, I feel that our role is really support, right? And being able to provide that, provide the backing that students lack. Like, students might not have the money to be able to provide meals for other students. Right? That's just, just not part of, even if you're med school or whatever. So then you can provide that. They might not have a stable place to meet because they're all leave, living in the dorms. You can provide that, a, a, like a home away from home, right? So in terms of the Bible study aspect, I feel that you need a core of people the core of students that can really kind of buy in to like 
evangelizing their campus. And then from there, um, for me, I, I actually spent my time building up the core. That's what I did. The Sabbath afternoon Bible studies initially were designed just to get people excited about studying the Bible, our Adventist students already. And then once you get the Adventist students and your core and you build them up, they will find the ways to reach other students. Just different topics, actually. I did not do Daniel and Revelation um, uh, almost at all. That might be heresy. Um, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, but really, uh, we, we, we eventually got to Daniel and Revelation after two years. Okay? But, but initially, in terms of building up your core, um, I tried to focus on those topics. This sounds weird, but just that people will be excited about studying you know, and finding in the Bible. So, like, I didn't focus really, let's say, on, uh, you know, like, like uh, let's say, whatever. Uh, you shouldn't kill or, you know, some sort of commandment. But really, really, it was like, okay, like taking a story or taking a passage and then really breaking it down and being able to, like, show that there's so much more to Bible study than just, you know, so taking, like, a common story, for example, uh, I took, you know, maybe like Aiken or something like that, right? And you take your leaders and you talk about Aiken and show that, you know, you know different things from there. Um, and so really the things that excite you in Bible study. I kind of took that. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is exciting for me. Maybe I can give that passion to the, the students as well. And really the core, I believe, of secular campus ministry is really Bible study, right? It's not inviting the secular or it's not inviting the people to church right that's that's like we we believe that's evangelism but that's that is evangelism but that's not really the evangel you need to change the way they think you need to change or god needs to change the way they think god needs to change um, their hearts and so the way to do that is study of the word um uh not some sort of you know you know because they could come to church and not like it and that's it they'll never come again but if they're convicted of the message through bible study they'll come to church on their own Right. They'll just show up on Sabbath, and we, that, that's the way that we did it. Any other questions? Oh, yes, one more. The other virus, 36, I think, was supposedly related to childhood obesity, mm-hmm. a viral infection via chickens, so um, in, today, in looking at this, I actually chose to focus more on bacteria. So I don't have an educated answer for you on the viral aspect. But I think that um, certainly more research has been dedicated to bacteria than virus. But there is probably some stuff there uh, in terms of how the, how the viruses that are living in our body actually live and balance with each other. So unfortunately, I can't give you an educated answer on that. What about a biography or, or a bibliography of core references you share yeah, if you can email me, I think uh, I think I can I can do that. It'll be A L B I E, sorry, A L B I E, zero two four at yahoo.com. A L B I E zero two four at yahoo.com. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.